0: Fortunately, it's not quite as um, unravelling as last week. So, <clears throat> I'm reading uh, 2 Samuel chapter 14. I'm reading the whole chapter. Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell on her face to the ground to pay him honour. And she said, help me, your majesty. The king asked her, what is troubling you? She said, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman... Go home, and I will issue an order on your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me, and they will not bother you again. She said, Then let the king invoke the lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction. So that my son will not be destroyed. as Surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, He devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from Him. And now I have come to say this to my Lord the King, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the King. Perhaps He will grant His servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who was trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, May the word of my lord the king secure my inheritance, for my lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the lord your God be with you. Then the king said to the woman, Don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. The king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered, As surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. The king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honour, and he blessed the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favour in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur.' It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom.
1: Well, uh, <clears throat> good morning, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open at uh, 2 Samuel 14. Thanks, Oliver and Ben, for... Uh sharing with us about square one based on the uh, the four kids that here today maybe uh, we need to spread the word to the other other parents and families um about this uh, great opportunity uh, for our kids to to come together and to hear the uh, the word of god in a great uh, enjoyable fun weekend so i'm just going to adjust this <clears throat> let's pray as we come to uh, this part of god's word will you pray with me our heavenly father we do thank you for your word uh, for the way that it, uh, it shines a light on, uh, on who you are and who we are and uh, points us ultimately to, uh, to your grace to us in Jesus. Father, we ask your help as we look at this part of your word that, uh, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us and that you would uh, be at work in us by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, compelling things about uh, biblical Christianity is the way that it, uh, it accounts for and explains the reality of the human condition, warts and all. Uh, it doesn't gloss over the, the, the fact that we are broken. It, it doesn't air, airbrush the reality that we humans are capable of and at times do terrible things. Uh, by God's grace, at times we are also capable of doing wonderful, great things. But the Bible presents a... Well, a realistic picture of the human condition and it does so with great explanatory power it says that our brokenness ultimately stems from our defiance of god our creator we are sinful and that sin leads to all manner of brokenness and dysfunction thankfully biblical christianity doesn't only helpfully and accurately and realistically diagnose our problem it also pushes us to the solution the glorious solution found in the lord jesus but in these chapters that we're looking at uh, this chapter today and the surrounding chapters uh, what they do is they highlight for us and illustrate the brokenness of sin which does ultimately point us to that glorious solution but it does so by showing us the folly of other attempts at a solution and it leaves us longing for a better way so my hope this morning is to well really to help us feel the weight of some of the foolish schemes of humans, uh, not to depress us, but to point us forward in hope to the glorious solution found in Jesus. Now, before we dive into uh, into this chapter, it's helpful to recap a bit of what's going on. Um, if you haven't been tuned into 2 Samuel, uh, that reading we've just had might kind of set your mind spinning what on earth is going on. So just let me help set some of the context. Uh, through the first half of 2 Samuel, which we looked at last year, uh, we've seen David rise as king of Israel, uh, which reaches a, a real high point in chapter 7, where, where God promises to make a house, a, a dynasty for David. He will raise up one of his offspring and he will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. See that in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. It's this real high point in the storyline of the Bible. But just as David's kingship reaches this great height, it, it all starts to unravel in disastrous ways. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he arranged the murder of her husband in an attempt to cover it up. God confronts David through Nathan. Uh, David repents, asks for God's forgiveness. God forgives David, but the consequences of his sin remain and unfold throughout these chapters. And so we see the downhill demise of the house of David. We saw last week the sins of the father being continued by David's sons, Amnon and Absalom. We saw David's response, he's he's furious and grief-stricken, but he remains passive and doesn't deal with with the situation. And so, chapter 13 last week finished with Absalom having plotted and carried out the murder of his brother Amnon, fleeing to Geshur, his mother's native country, where he remained in exile for three years. It's a messy situation. David's king, but his family is going off the rails. Amnon, his firstborn, is dead. Absalom, who it would seem is lining up to take on the throne. He's murdered his brother and has fled. And David is seemingly doing nothing about the whole situation. It's a mess. And what unfolds in in this chapter is the attempts of three men to deal with the situation in the way that they think best. Uh, they try to, to sort out the troubles that had come on the house of David, but actually in their efforts they only really managed to make things worse and in fact unintentionally prepare the way for the near destruction of David's kingdom. Now there's quite a bit going on in this chapter and at first reading it, it might be a bit hard to kind of get your head around, but I, I want to look at it under the heading of foolish schemes and then look at, break it up into the, the foolish schemes of these three men. Firstly, and you'll see, uh, you can follow along on the outline, there's Joab's cunning scheme. Now, who's Joab? Joab's the commander of David's army. Uh, he's also David's nephew, as uh, verse 1 reminds us, the son of Zeruiah, who's David's sister. And Joab is the sort of person who, well, he's absolutely sure that he knows what needs to be done, and he's fully confident that he's the one to do it. Do you know that sort of person? They're, they're not that uncommon. Now I think Joab was probably well-intentioned he wanted to to set things right he wanted to disentangle the the mess of of David's family and uh, with Absalom estranged and David seemingly doing nothing about it for for three years Joab tries to help Uh, at least I'm sure that's how he saw things so Joab uh, devised this cunning plan to manipulate David he enlisted the help of a wise woman uh, from Tekoa a nearby town and the description there uh, in verse two of her is, as wise, it's the same word that's used in the previous chapter of Jonadab, uh, Amnon's horrendous advisor. The word translated there was very shrewd, so you could say or well, cunning. So Job enlists the help of this wise, shrewd woman woman to to uh, to, to carry out his cunning scheme, and he gives her this acting gig. She is to pretend to be a mourning, desperate widow in need of the king's help. So verse 2 we read, Uh, Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. And so, under Joab's instructions, she goes to the king, and she manipulates him brilliantly with her desperate story. The story goes, verse four: When the woman went from Tekoa, went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor, and she said, "Help me, your Majesty!" The king asked her, "What is troubling you?" She said, "I am a widow; my husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons." They got into a fight with each other in the field. No one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of, the brother, uh, for the life of his brother whom he killed. It's a very sad story. One son struck the other, killed him. It's reminiscent of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4 where Cain killed Abel, Uh, Cain was then banished but protected from anyone who would want to to kill him and as the woman's story goes, the whole clan has risen up to avenge the death of the son by killing the other son. And they may have actually argued that God's law required this. Uh, Exodus 21 verse 12 on the screen says, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills another deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. So the question hangs over this, was it deliberate or not in this fictitious story? We don't know. Should justice require the death of the murderer? Well, the woman pleads... For, uh, with the king for her remaining son's protection and and she kind of gives four reasons for it firstly she, she she seems to present it as unintentional I mean he didn't plan it it just in the heat of the battle and the heat of a fight and it just happened secondly she says that the clan is actually not really interested in justice they just want to as she says get rid of the air, the air, perhaps so that they can get their hands on the estate Thirdly, she appeals to the, the king's compassion when I mean, she's lost her husband, uh, she's lost her other son and, and now they would remove, she said, the only burning coal she has left, the only remaining source of warmth and light in her life. And lastly, she highlights that her husband's name and posterity would be eliminated if they kill the remaining son. It's a sad story and it's masterfully told. I think at this point, we can't help wonder if the king is starting to see the parallels in his own situation. Two sons, one kills the other. What should happen to the remaining son? Should he die? Should he flee? Should he be restored? The woman has appealed for help. The king gives his answer, verse 8. The king said to the woman, go home and I'll issue an order on your behalf. It's fairly non-committal. Go home. I'll, I'll, I'll do something about it. I'll, I'll, I'll issue an order. Well, she's not really ready to leave. Um, she and Joab are not finished yet, and so she courageously pushes things further. Verse nine. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, "Let my lord, the king, pardon me and my family, and, and let the king and his throne be without guilt." I think what she's saying is, "Look, if there's a concern in the king's mind that." it could be wrong to let the bloodshed go unpunished. Well, she's saying, let that be on me and on my family and and not on the king. She's taking full responsibility if there's any concern about any sort of injustice being done in this fictitious story. The manipulation is well played and the king steps up his, his reassertion, verse 10. He says, the king replied, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and they will not bother you again. It is reassuring, but it's still a bit non-committal. What's going to happen to the son? Will he be destroyed? And and so she pushes again, verse 11, she said, Then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. She boldly goes to the heart of the issue. She asks the king to act in the name of the Lord God to protect her son. It's interesting there she speaks of the, uh, the avenger of blood, which seems to even suggest that maybe the, the clan has a case. Um, that, that phrase, avenger of blood, is it occurs in a few times in the Old Testament law in Numbers 35, describes similar situations that would actually call for the death of the murderer. But the woman pleads for the king to, to, to override that, to declare that, that this will not take place. And she's manipulated the king so well that he... He caves, no longer beating around the bush. He he says clearly, unambiguously, verse 11, as surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. David promises to act to save the dubiously guilty son. And this cunning woman under Joab's direction has, has moved the king to fall for her trap. Now she, she boldly pushes one step further. Uh, first she asks, verse 12, verse 12 uh, the woman said, Let your servants speak a word to my lord, the king. She seeks permission to speak again. She has his attention and he says, speak. Verse 13, the woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? for the king has not brought back his banished son. Now, at this point, she hasn't dropped to pretense, um, but she raises this kind of as a a secondary issue, perhaps something that's just seemingly just occurred to her. She points out a a double standard. I mean, the king is willing to, to save her guilty son, but he's unwilling to bring back his own banished son. And she is, in effect, likening his lack of care for Absalom to Well, to the destructive intent of the clan seeking her son's death. Notice she says there that David's failure is against the people of God. His his response or his lack of response is in some way harming the people of God. Now, this is a bold thing to do. This is a bold thing for this woman to say to the king. But the double standard is, is obvious and the king is somewhat trapped. And then what she does superbly, she she pushes her point point further whilst also simultaneously easing off the pressure by speaking more, more generally. She says somewhat philosophically, verse 14, like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. I mean, death comes to us all. It's as inevitable as spilled water on the ground being unrecoverable. But, she continues, but that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. She's saying, God is keen to see banished people restored. He's a God of grace and restoration, she reminds the king. And I wonder if this comment was calculated to remind David of his own history of being a banished man, driven away by the anger of Saul, and yet the Lord devised a way so that he didn't remain banished forever. But she's just talking about what God desires, supposedly. She's just interested to notice and comment on this incidental parallel in their situations and and David's apparent double standard. And then having masterfully pointed out the elephant in the room, she quickly retreats behind her disguise as a mourning widow, and pretends that what she just said was just a secondary afterthought. So verse 15, she says, And now I've come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought I'll speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, May the word of my Lord, the king, secure my inheritance. For my Lord, the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. My paraphrase, O king, thank you so much for promising to save my son. That really is why I came here. And did I mention how wonderful you are? Um, P.S. Please don't kill me. (laughs) I picture a pretty tense scene. I mean, she has just challenged the king, accused him of, of not bringing back his Spanish son, which she says would be the godly thing to do. What will the king do? It's the king's turn to uh, make a request or perhaps a demand. Verse 18, then the king said to the woman, don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. It's nice she gave the king permission to speak. (laughs) Then verse 19, the king asked, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? The king is cottoned on to what's happening. Joab's put you up to this, hasn't he? The wise woman knows the game is up. She answers, as surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. She re- and then she reveals Joab's motive. So your, your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. And then she adds this flourish to hopefully keep in the king's good books. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. So Joab's cunning scheme was to maneuver the king into bringing back his banished son, Absalom. But who's right? Who's right in this instance? Should Absalom be brought back? Or should he die? Or should he be banished? for killing his brother Amnon or or was he actually right to take action against Amnon especially in the absence of any action from the king Uh, who is doing the right thing in this situation does Joab have good intentions to to try and bring unity and restoration to David's family or perhaps is he just using whatever cunning scheme he can to achieve the outcome that he thinks is best which would fit with Joab's character that we see elsewhere Well, did it work? Did Joab's scheme work? Verse 21, the king said to Joab, very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. One sense, the manipulation worked. The king gave in and brought back Absalom. But he does so seemingly quite reluctantly. He's reluctant to change the situation. It's not full-blown repentance. It's unlike the response when he was challenged by Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba, where he simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. Here it's kind of, well, it's hardly heartfelt and yet he agrees to let Joab fetch Absalom. Joab responds with flattery. Verse 22, Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honour and and he blessed the king. Joab said, today your servant knows that he has found favour in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Joab thinks, you beauty, we've done it. Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. Joab thinks his scheme has worked, but... David has a scheme of his own in mind. His compromise scheme is to allow Absalom to return, to to return to Jerusalem, but to deny him any access to himself as king. He says, verse 24, but, the king said, he must not go to his own house, he must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. David refused to deal with things, he refused to deal with his son Absalom, he, they're living in the same city, but relationally was separate, there was no reconciliation or relationship. I think David's attempt at a solution, his, his compromise scheme, is actually very common. You know, when there's a, a problem between people, they, they might just put on a facade Pretend that things are, things are okay, but actually they're held at arm's length. It doesn't actually work. doesn't bring true reconciliation, and it, it can't. Because there isn't any real admission of guilt. There's no repentance. There's no forgiveness. The, the cracks are just papered over. It's all too common. David's compromised scheme didn't improve the situation. It actually made things worse. But before we come to the third scheme, that of um, Absalom, his response to the situation, we're given some detail about Absalom, which will turn out to be, in fact, uh, significant. Firstly, we're told that he was highly praised for his appearance. Uh, Verse 25 says, In all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. His would have been the face on the cover of the magazines. And we're told, secondly, that he had a, a very fertile head of hair. <laughs> 26 says, whenever he cut his, the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. That's over two kilograms of hair each year. Now, this is likely, as mentioned, because as, this is a sign of his strength. Uh, he's, he's a Samson-like figure. And so here we have Absalom... The son of the prince, presented as a a popular, good-looking, strong prince, who who himself has offspring, verse 27 continues, three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom, his daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. He names his daughter after his sister. So Absalom here is presented as, as an eligible candidate for the throne, especially if appearances are the thing that matters. Which... In light of the earlier disastrous rule of Saul, we've learnt that actually appearances are not the thing that matters. Nonetheless, as we'll discover next week, Absalom certainly did have his eye on the throne. And so for him being excluded from even the face of the king for two years, as verse 28 says, this was certainly a problem to him. And so we come to Absalom's determined scheme. Now Joab had been the one who had brought him from Geshur to Jerusalem and so Absalom thought, well, Joab needs to finish the job. Joab needs to bring him before the king. So he sends for Joab, verse 29. Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come. So he said a second time, but he refused to come. For whatever reason, Joab doesn't want to be a pawn in Absalom's plan. But Absalom is determined. And he will pursue whatever he wants and doesn't really care about how he gets it. And so verse 30, he said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. That should get his attention, right? Well, it did. Verse 31, Joab did go to Absalom's house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? What the heck? Why would you set my field on fire, Joab says. Verse 32, Absalom said to Joab, well, you didn't come. Um, No, he says, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. It's a bold challenge there, isn't there, isn't there?" If I'm guilty of anything, says Absalom. Well, he did, kill, he did kill his brother, Amnon. But he might argue, well, he was just filling the vacuum caused by David's own failure to bring justice. If I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. It's a bold, risky challenge, but I think Absalom's counting on David's continued passive response. Absalom's ruthless pragmatics worked. Joab, perhaps in fear of losing more crops, went to the king. Verse 33, Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. The king didn't put him to death. The king kissed him. Now, I don't think the writer here has in mind a, 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 a heartfelt reunion of, of estranged father and son. It's not like the reunion of, um, of the estranged brothers Esau and Jacob in Genesis 33, where Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they, they wept. It's, it's not like that. There's no mention here of, of David by name. He's just the king. This is not a heartfelt reunion of a father and son. It's a More of a royal pardon from the king to someone who, at best, has a big shadow hanging over them. So, what do we learn from all of this? Well, this chapter illustrates for us the foolishness of human schemes. Uh, Schemes that really just amount to people doing what they think is the best thing to do in the situation. Joab's cunning scheme to manipulate the king into bringing back Absalom. The king's own compromise scheme in response to allow Absalom to return but allow, not allow him to see his face. Absalom's determined scheme to effectively force his way before the king and happily set fire to Joab's field if that's what it takes. It's people just doing what they think is best. But throughout it all, the mess of, of guilt of estrangement of of self-interest it it, it remains and it it festers despite the, the various human efforts there's there's no justice there's no repentance or forgiveness or reconciliation I mean there's there's this display of peace at the end but as we read on we discover it's only a facade the effects of sin are left to compound it's a pretty desperate and dark picture and we might well wonder, well, gee, is there any hope? Is there hope in, in 2 Samuel for the people of God, or has David's failed kingship just ruined everything? Is there hope for us, who, who all too often engage in, in similar foolish schemes, whether cunning or compromise or, or sheer determination? Is there hope for us? The good news of 2 Samuel, the good news of the Bible, is that there is hope. God is still at work. Despite human folly, God is at work. Uh, He he promised in in 2 Samuel 7 that he would establish the throne of his king forever. And despite human sin, despite our sin, he kept that promise. In the New Testament, in Colossians 1, Paul Paul addresses our situation in terms that that are similar, but actually far worse than Absalom's banished state. He says, Colossians 1.21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. The default state of humanity, the default state of you and me is alienation from God, is estrangement, enmity towards God in our minds because of our evil behaviour. But rather than leave us at a distance, rather than leave us to our our own self-destruction, God has brought us back to himself and truly reconciled us. Colossians 1 continues, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, not held at a distance beyond the face of the king, but holy in his sight not just with a, an outward display of beauty, success and strength, but actually truly washed clean, without blemish, free from accusation. By Christ's death, he has reconciled us. And he's done it fully, he's done it righteously, he's done it with overflowing grace. You know, this this scene with Absalom and, and the king bowing the, the, the kiss, it, it reminds me of another scene in the Bible with, with a father and the return of his estranged son. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a son who, who left his father and travelled to a foreign land and, and he was guilty. He'd turned his back on his father. But when he came to his senses, he returned to his father. He wasn't kept at a distance for two years, unable to see his father's face. He didn't have to force his way to get a formal audience before his father. No, it says in Luke 15, 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. He lavishly welcomed him home, restored, forgiven, reconciled. It's a beautiful picture that that contrasts the picture here in 2 Samuel 14. It's a picture of, of our Heavenly Father who, despite our foolish schemes, despite our failed attempts to sort things out ourselves, he generously and graciously welcomes us extravagantly, reconciles us truly to himself through Christ Jesus so that he might present us wholly in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Praise God for his grace and mercy. And as people who are truly reconciled to God, well, we ought to also seek to be truly reconciled to each other as much as that depends on us. So let's put away our foolish schemes of cunning, manipulation of compromise, distancing of forceful determination. Be reconciled to God and seek to be reconciled to each other. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for that picture of abundant grace and mercy. For the Father who lovingly welcomes home his wayward son. We thank you that you have shown us such mercy to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus father we thank you that despite the folly of our human schemes that you are graciously at work reconciling us to yourself we thank you and praise you that your heart is far greater than that of david that you are both perfectly just and abundantly kind and we thank you that you you meet us in our brokenness in our enmity and evil behavior and that you meet us with extravagant grace Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we would be people who are are reconciled to you through Jesus and who therefore seek to be reconciled to others also. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.